0: it's Thursday, August 15th, 2019. Welcome back to the CBS Sports I am College Basketball Podcast where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me and if we're being honest, there's not much going on in college basketball right now. Pretty quiet, but we promise you um, in the off season, a new episode every week. So we're here. Norlander, what's up with it?
1: Well, every week except I do have a vacation next week, so oh, yeah. I don't even know if you're aware of that, but yes, I will be off next week. So barring something extremely drastic uh this will be the last podcast for anywhere between 11 and 15 days but uh yeah man thanks to the listeners real quick here we're this is These are the true dog days of the college basketball offseason. August is way low on interesting stuff, usually for the most part, although we do have some good stuff on the podcast here. And uh, we know we still have a consistent listenership, so thank you so much. We really do appreciate that. And regardless of how much news there is or isn't, with the exception of vacation weeks, we will continue to give you podcasts weekly until we get up to the start of the season, in which case, of course, we'll be going back to three times a week.
0: Meantime, I'm battling tennis elbow, both elbows.
1: All right, so uh, that's – I'm sure you've talked about this on your radio show, but I'm going to allow you the floor here to do this. But my question is, see, as you say that, what the listeners don't know that I do know is you took a sledgehammer to some stuff on your property in recent weeks, which I know led you to walking around like Frankenstein's monster in Colorado Springs. There was a tightening – a tightness in your muscles – So the fact that you have double tennis elbow, is it directly related to you going ham on whatever the heck you were breaking up three weeks ago and now you're basically incapacitated?
0: As stupid as it sounds, it is directly related to that, yes. It's the dumbest thing in the world. So um, we had an old like wooden playground set in our backyard um, that we got when my oldest son – who is now 16 years old, was like, you know, maybe three years old or something, right? We got it for him, and, and he played on it, and then it sat there for a while because we didn't have another child for 11 years. And uh, now our little dudes like to play on it because they're little dudes, but it's it's old now. You know, it's probably 13 years old. It's it's worn from the weather. The wood was starting to crack. It wasn't unsafe, but it was, wob- it was more wobbly than it should have been. And so we developed a plan, pretty basic plan. We're going to get rid of this playground set and then buy a brand-new playground set for our little dudes, and they'll, uh, they'll they'll enjoy it the same way our oldest son once enjoyed his. So uh, the first step in this is we got to get rid of the old playground set, right? And I guess you can, like, get a drill and take a bunch of screws out and that nah. kind of stuff. That's the way most, you know, men and probably women would approach this situation. But I don't know how to do any of that. Like, I, even though I am a i just i'm not i don't know how to do normal stuff that normal people do i don't know how to do i'm i like if if you get a Christmas present that needs to be put together i'm probably not the guy who's going to be able to put that together so I recognized that the wood was starting to crack anyway it seemed pretty flimsy, so I said, you know what I wonder if uh if I just bought a sledgehammer and uh I could just like you know the wood's already cracking I could probably with a sledgehammer. You know, beat it to death, break it apart, and then we just carry it out to the road for the garbage, and uh, and that would be perhaps the easiest way to get this out of our backyard. So I go on Amazon and I order like a twenty pound sledgehammer. It comes in two days later because Amazon's amazing, and I go out to the backyard, with my brand new sledgehammer, and I start swinging it, and I break this thing apart. Um,
1: incredibly, you're feeling great, I'm sure. My plan, my
0: plan actually worked. Unbelievably well. I broke the entire thing apart. We drew, We took the the smaller pieces of wood and slide and everything else out to the street. And suddenly, this playground set that we needed to get rid of, that I was thinking about paying somebody to actually do for me, I did it myself. I did it in an uh, unconventional way. Probably not the smartest way, but it got done. I cracked all the wood. I took it out to the street. So, it was me and my oldest son doing it together. And so the next day, my arms are sore, like from my elbows down to my wrist. They're sore. Like like if you never had done squats and then suddenly you did a bunch of squats, your legs might be sore the next day. So that's what I chalked it up to. Like, well, you know, I'm not really used to swinging a sledgehammer, so I guess I'm just sore from swinging a sledgehammer the same way you know, you'd be sore from doing squats if you never did squats. So I asked my son, um, I said, uh, I said, yo, because he 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 also swung the sledgehammer a little bit when I was getting tired. I said, hey, yo, um, are your arms hurting at all from yesterday? He was like, no. I was like, okay. Well, and then I just sort of chalked that up to, well, he's 16 years old and he's in amazing shape. And it's probably just like, that's the difference. He's 16 and an amazing shape and I'm 42 and not in amazing 47, shape. But yeah, continue. And, And so I figure, okay, well, then the soreness will just go away. And then, like, a day passes and nothing. And then four days pass and nothing. Two weeks pass, nothing. I think this is about where you see me in Colorado Springs. And I'm like, dude, my arms are still hurting. But, like, I'm just assuming this will go away at some point. never goes away. So I do talk about it on radio. And radio doctors uh, diagnosed me with carpal tunnel syndrome. And so I started reading about carpal tunnel syndrome, and it was just like, ice your arms, take Advil, that should go away fairly soon. But I've been doing that for about two weeks now. It ain't going away. So I finally go to the doctor yesterday, and they x-rayed both of my elbows. And you'll, you'll be glad to know, my elbows, structurally, doctor said I got great elbows. He was, like, really impressed with my elbows. He was like, your elbows look great. And no, no damage in terms of structural uh, the structure of your elbow at all. I was like, that's good news, Doc. Thank you. I, never, I knew I had unbelievable eyelashes. Didn't know I had unbelievable elbows, but it's good to hear. He said, but you do have a severe case of whatever the proper name is. And he said, but it's more commonly referred to as tennis elbow. I said, I got tennis elbow severe case in both elbows. He said, yes. I said, okay. And because honestly, you know, just independent of anything else, Tennis elbow doesn't sound that bad. Like, I've heard of tennis elbow before, and I was like, okay, tennis elbow. Well, tough it up. Like, you'll be fine. So this doctor looks at me, and I said, uh, okay, so what do, what do we do next? And he goes, well, what you're going to need to do is buy this Flex Bar on Amazon. He shows me on his iPad. He said, buy this. You're going to need to exercise with it, you know, probably eight to ten times per day. You know, just twisting it and turning it and bending it. It'll strengthen the tendons and whatever else. I said, okay, that's easy enough. He said, um, then you need to buy this arm brace for your left arm and another one for your right arm. Mm. And every night when you're at home or whenever you're, you know, not in need of your arms, you need to have these on and ice your arms. Like ice your elbows. I was like, okay. And he said, and then, and this is the part that got me. And then if everything goes well. In, like, four to six months, you'll be back to normal activity. I'm like, what? Four <laughs> yes. to six months? dude? <laughs> you can recover from an hill more quickly than you can recover from tennis elbow? Like, I cannot. I am under doctor's orders not to lift anything, play golf,
1: nothing, for at least four to six months. And that's the best case scenario. What in the world? Not only that, you ignored this advice and used now I know I'll let you off the hook. I saw your guitar smashing video. That's yes. a great opportunity. Not a lot of people get an opportunity to smash a guitar, let alone smash a guitar in front of thousands of people. You did that. Your form, the way you came down, it was probably a C at best. You look like a novice. But now that I know that you're dealing with a little double tennis elbow, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you for that. Um, the only question I have about that was, was that a fully intact guitar? Or was that propped up for you, ready to be, you know, smashed as soon as it made contact
0: fully intact guitar it was at the memphis 901 fc soccer match on saturday against north carolina fc they've started a deal it's an expansion team this is the first year they've they've ever played and one of the gimmicks they came up with you know to get people involved and people excited is there will be a pre-match guitar smash sort of paying tribute to the the history of memphis music um so penny hardaway has smashed a guitar uh memphis football coach mike norvell has smashed a guitar uh john morant the second pick 2019 nba draft has pre-match smashed a guitar so they asked me if i wanted to smash a guitar and i don't know how to turn that down of course i want to smash a guitar now i it's when they asked me and i agreed to do it it was before i injured both elbows but breaking up a playground set in my backyard with a sledgehammer so i committed to it i was fully healthy by the time I get to it, I got tennis elbow, both elbows. But it wasn't that I was trying to be weak with the guitar smash, it, uh, the uh, the initial swing. It's that I did a lot of like, I, you know how people you put in, you, you know, you watch film, you put in work in the film room. I put in work in the film room, and the film room was basically um, my office with YouTube. And I went and watched people smash guitars. I was trying to come up with the best approach to make sure this thing actually smashed first swing. And what I figured out is the key is hit the back of the guitar on the corner of the amp. So the corner of the amp, you know, goes through the back of the guitar. And now you've got a smash guitar. (laughs) So my initial swing, I was more going for perfect contact as opposed to force. And so that's what you saw. But then my second swing, violent, shattered to complete pieces, then I guitar pitch, then I flexed on them hoes. I am told by the Bluff City Mafia, which is the uh, cheering, like the, you know, the group of soccer fans that go really bananas um, entire 90 minutes of a match. I'm told that I'm in the top two of guitar smashers so far this season. So far ever. It's a former um, Tennessee football star, NFL uh, defensive back Andre Lott and me. We're the top two guitar smashers so far in Memphis 901 FC history.
1: Well, congrats on that. It's been thank an, you. A, it's been an eventful past few weeks here. This is completely overshadowed a 70-foot tree falling on my property. But we're 11 minutes into a college basketball podcast, haven't touched on the college hoops yet. So I'll bypass that story altogether. I've been having unanticipated fun with a chainsaw. All limbs and appendages still in place there. But uh, but regardless, yeah, things on the home front have been uh, have been rather interesting. College basketball-wise, GP, n- there have been a few interesting stories here. I'll, I'll let you take first smack at what you want to get into. Obviously, uh, you've been writing about stuff. I've been writing about stuff. So what shall we uh, what shall we lead off with here?
0: Let's start with the news from last night. Last night being Wednesday night, uh, Michael Avenatti's legal team, Michael Avenatti, of course, being a, a prominent lawyer, most famously representing Stormy Daniels, who claims to have had sex with the president of the United States, Michael Avenatti's legal team, filed a motion yesterday to have extortion charges against him dropped. And it's a motion that brought Zion Williamson, Romeo Langford, and some other high-profile basketball players back into the headlines. Uh, for folks who might have missed that story while they were watching the Mets lose to the Braves, uh, Norlander, please provide the details.
1: Uh, Sure. You might have been one of those folks watching the Mets lose to the Braves. That's just a guess, though. Um, Um, All right. There's a a lot here, and this is kind of a convoluted story. Let me have a couple minutes to lay this all out because, you know, credit to the Yahoo guys, uh, Dan Wetzel, Pete Thamel, Pat Forty. They had this story go up late Wednesday. This particular motion on behalf of Michael Avenatti's legal team was filed in court late on Wednesday. So, okay. Back in March... Michael Avenatti tweeted in the midst of the tournament. By the way, um, I don't even think we wound up talking about this on a podcast. Period, because it kind of went nowhere, and we didn't know like how valid it was. Plus, you know, the tournament. So he tweets that he's going to have a press conference the following day that would expose Nike for a lot of high school and college basketball corruption. Okay, when he first of all, the fact that he is tweeting this. It is bizarre as anything for the aforementioned uh, feuding. He's a foil to Donald Trump, whatever. So Avenatti's like getting involved in this. It's like, what are we even doing here? Within like 30 minutes of that tweet going out, he is arrested and charged with extortion for up to $25 million against Nike. So it was one of those things where for a hot minute there, it was like, whoa, Michael Avenatti might have some stuff on Nike and... It might have been doing the same stuff that Adidas wound up in federal court for. Then he gets charged and it kind of goes away. Like 10 days later, he tweets twice about Nike paying the mother of Zion Williamson and it kind of is out there, but it just kind of dissipates. Well, On Wednesday night, this becomes a story again because his legal team files a motion to have those extortion charges dismissed from him and dropped altogether. The reason why they want them dismissed is because Avenatti claims, if you really look at the timeline of events that happened here... I was not trying to extort Nike, but in fact, I had linked up with a former Nike EYBL youth basketball coach who had been complaining behind the scenes for a long time about wanting to clean up Nike, which he alleges was just as dirty as what Adidas had to go to federal court for. The company was slow to respond. He was going to present litigation. And then I linked up with the lawyer of this other Nike EYBL coach. The federal government sees it the other way. Michael Avenatti is facing multiple extortion, fraud, tax evasion, charges in multiple states, facing decades worth of imprisonment if found guilty. He's got a lot going on. Relatively speaking, this is a high profile kind of story, but in terms of what should mean the most to him, this should be way, way, way down the list. But it's college basketball, it's high school basketball, it's Nike. It is a legitimate story in circles right now. So where do we get to next? Well, in this particular complaint where he is saying, here's why you should not be charging me with extortion, he provides a lot of background and that background Bring some serious allegations and accusations against Nike and former college basketball players who at the time were in high school. So most specifically, the allegations are that Nike's high-ranking employees, the people that helped put on the Peach Jam, run the EYBL circuit, they were knowingly complicit in paying players, families, and our guardians and representatives to entice them to play on the Nike EYBL there is uh, an allegation that 38 out of 40, and this is per the word allegedly of Carlton DeBose, who's one of the highest-ranking Nike employees, he tells a Nike VP 38, to 40, 38 out of 40 Nike EYBL player uh, teams could have been funded with the intention of paying some players' families representatives on that team. Obviously, these are unfounded. There's actually nothing GP and Avenatti's a uh, complaint that provides actual evidence, but there are allegations. Let's get to the big names here: Arizona's DeAndre Ayton, yes, he's back in this. Oregon's Bull Bull, former UNLV forward Brandon McCoy, Duke's Zion Williamson, Indiana's Romeo Langford, and an unlisted kid from Michigan. We'll get to that in just a second for practical purposes. The allegation is that Nike helped afford a $30,000 payment to DeAndre Ayton's handler, Mel McDonald. There was also $10,000 given to Ayton's mother and travel expenses afforded to Ayton's family in 2016. This would have been long before we knew about the FBI's investigation into college basketball. Keep that in mind. Also, allegations that a $10,000 check was sent to Brandon McCoy's handler, Sean Manning, and 5000 in cash was delivered to Manning as well. And then in 2017, prior to the FBI investigation becoming public, allegations that a $29,528 wire transfer, that is quite the specific number, was sent to Bull Bull's handler, who was also allegedly DeAndre Ayton's handler, Mel McDonald, and there was a separate $12,500 wire transfer. So, all of this is coming about and I'll get to the Zion-Romeo stuff in just a second here. And it is a convoluted story, but it's just because Avenatti's facing all these charges doesn't necessarily mean that all this stuff is not without merit. Some of it might be true. Some of it might not be. This is all happening because a former coach of California Supreme, which was on the Nike circuit, Gary Franklin, he got basically fed up with being pressured to mask payments, put phony invoices, which some of it was the exact stuff Adidas got hit for, GP, in the federal trials. He got fed up with that. So he went to Nike and said, I'm not cool with some of your power players on the Nike EYB uh, arm of your company telling me that I have to do this. That if I don't do this, we're going to potentially lose... Um, a big-time player like a Bull Bull to the Adidas circuit. So he makes a big stink about it. He's asking Nike to purge itself. And it doesn't really go anywhere. He's wanting justice more than he's wanting money. But, of course, eventually he wants damages. He's losing his own program. This happened in 2017. So Gary Franklin is at the crux of why this is even a thing to begin with. Now, the other allegation therein is that Avenetti claims to have documentation of Carlton uh, DeVos and you've got... Uh, Jamal James, another Nike employee, texting um, Nike recruiting coordinator John Stovall in February of 2017 after asking if they would be, quote, willing to do ellipsis, whatever may be needed for the Zion Romeo situations, as well as the money we're now going to do for the redacted kid in Michigan. Now, this creates a lot of headlines and controversy, but we have to be fair to the situation. NCAA rules allow for the parents of prospects to run a grassroots operation if in the eyes of the NCAA and then... Theoretically, in the eyes of the shoe companies, it's all on the up and up. That's exactly what happened with Marvin Bagley Jr. when he coached a Nike funded team for his son, Marvin Bagley III. And guess what? It's also what happened with Zion Williamson's stepfather on the Adidas circuit and Romeo Langford's father on the Adidas circuit. So there remains a possibility that Zion and Romeo's situations as they pertain to Nike might have simply just been a competitive market thing, i.e., why these kids should be getting paid anyway, and the whole notion of amateurism is so deeply flawed, regardless. Fans of opposing programs might want to, you know, jump on this and say, "Ha! See, we told you." Well, that might be the case, but it also might be the case that Nike was trying to do the same thing with Zion Williamson and Romeo Langford that it was doing with Marvin Bagley III's father. That's entirely possible. And then, if we're being practical about this, the redacted kid, the kid in Michigan, uh, is Monty Bates. It, right? it, it can be no one but Imani Bates at this point. Damani Bates is like in 7th grade, and I did a story on Imani Bates. Talked to his father on the record in July. They have invested. The team that is playing that Imani Bates plays for is Bates Fundamentals. It is not a team you see year after year after year at the Peach Jam on the Nike EYBL circuit. Nike legitimately has paid the Bates family to become part of that circuit. So, while some of this stuff is certainly floating into the realm of not outright flagrantly violating NCAA rules parish the Zion, Romeo, and what we will for official purposes just assume on our own behalf as amani bates could very well be above board but it's more of the um the allegations that multiple teams uh, are being afforded money, paid money, and and you have a coach who's in this, who was in the middle of all this, saying that all this NCAA rule breaking was happened. Last thing I know, I've been rambling here, but I'm trying to lay this out as clearly as I can for listeners because it's kind of an interesting case, and I don't know how far it's going to go along, what this will mean for NCAA investigators. But if I'm a Kentucky compliance director today. I'm having the whole staff in because there's also a nugget in there that says uh, Nike executives were in communication with the Kentucky assistant. Not that Kentucky was doing anything wrong, but that it had communicated that at least 10 programs on the Nike EYB circuit were being, you know, nefariously funded uh, or funded, you know, through means that wouldn't want to be known publicly. And, you know, a Kentucky Kentucky assistant merely had this information. You're allowed to have the information. It's not legal or anything against Kentucky. But it's another reason why we see how pervasive all of this stuff was. And during those federal trials in New York, Adidas and the defense lawyers were saying, Adidas was not bidding against itself here. The stuff that you that we are on trial for, obviously, was happening at other major shoe companies. This Avenatti case is shedding a light on that. We just don't know what steps might come next, and if this if these charges will be dropped or if they won't.
0: So, um, I'm not going to make statements here. I want to ask you questions, okay? And and you help fill everybody in. Um, First and foremost, I, I I will make this statement. I know some people roll their eyes at Michael Evanotti, and he's obviously got his own legal issues. And uh, because of that, some people insist credibility issues. Let the record show, um, I believe all this. Do you believe all this?
1: I believe... Much of it. I don't know if I would say I would believe all of what's here, but I agree with you that just because Michael Avenatti might prove to be a fraud in many realms doesn't mean that the information that he has here, which his legal team says he has documentation and is asking for discovery for, um, isn't valid.
0: Right. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, Is the obvious difference... First off, let me also say this: I believe yes, Nike was doing everything that Adidas got in trouble for doing, and also Under Armour. I believe doing everything that Adidas got in trouble for doing. But is the is is the obvious difference here between what actually Adidas got in trouble for doing, which is paying Brian Bowen to go to Louisville, um, paying Silvio De um you know, a guardian. You know, to ensure, and I know people at Kansas dispute this, but right. somebody connected to Silvio D'Souza was compensated by an Adidas official, and then he enrolled at an Adidas school. Like, that's factual. Um, is the obvious difference here that Nike was funding people to play for Nike teams, and Adidas was actually accused of of paying p- people connected to players in a way that theoretically made them ineligible, and then pushing them to Adidas schools. Is that the difference here?
1: That's a pretty big fundamental difference. I'll note that Michael Avenatti on Twitter in the past, uh, you know, 14 hours since the story published and since we're doing this podcast has also reiterated that Nike paid Duke and insinuated that that payment, or Nike uh, Nike paid Williamson and insinuated that that payment was in an effort to steer him toward Duke. Um, That's a pretty big insinuation there. Uh, But a lot of, yes, a lot of the, stuff at the heart of the adidas trials and the federal trials that that tied in adidas particularly the first one more than the second one was more steering the players toward universities or bribing them and in doing so putting the universities in danger i.e defrauding them that is not as much of what's uh depicted here i'll also say that there's plenty that's not in this complaint because the complaint again is not to get the Players or the schools. The complaint is Avinatti saying, "I was not trying to distort Nike, and here's the timeline that proves why. Because you had a youth basketball coach that for two years was trying to clean up Nike from the inside out privately. The company wasn't responding in time, and eventually, he went to a lawyer. The lawyer found me. So this is why, you know, yada yada. That's why this is happening. And only within that complaint, he provides context of what happens. That's why we have all of this stuff again." There is no proof of any payments actually happening. There's just strong allegations therein. And if you follow the space, obviously, a lot of those allegations are believable.
0: Listen, I I don't think it's an accident that Marvin Bagley has a, or a coincidence that Marvin Bagley's father is, um, you know, basically given a budget from Nike to start a team that they'll put on the EYBL circuit. And the team, by the way, you and I saw them a lot. They were terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It It was like Marvin Bagley and a bunch of like whatever's they were awful, but they wanted Marvin Bagley to be a part of the EYBL circuit. So you do what you have to do. And then he ends up enrolling at Duke, uh, you know, which is right there with Kentucky as the most prominent Nike school um, in college basketball. I don't think any of that's an accident. I also um, don't believe that it's anything new. Uh, This stuff has been going on forever. Like I have a a good friend, Keith Easterwood who, who ran the grassroots scene in Memphis a long time ago for for many years? He was basically Sonny Vaccaro's, um you know guy in Memphis, and he'll tell you stories about deals they had to do just to get players to go to ABCD camp. He'll go all the way back to the time he had to deliver whatever to Ron Mercer's people, and Ron Mercer was the mid nineties, yeah. Like, You know, to your point about building teams around players, uh, Zion had one built around him. Romeo had one built around him. Marvin Bagley had one built around him. Imani Bates right now has one built around him. Adidas came in here um, nearly 15 years ago and did a Memphis pump and run team built around Thaddeus Young. You know who coached the team? Felton Young, Thaddeus' father. And then as soon as Thaddeus was off to Georgia Tech, that team just disappeared. It was it was very much, uh, you know, exactly what, what Nike did with Marvin Bagley. Like, you have a team while this player's here, and then when that player's gone, um, that team no longer exists. And so I, I think this maybe pulls the curtain back for casual basketball fans about, oh, wow, you know, these elite prospects, you know, shoe companies will build entire teams around them and take care of their – father or mother or guardian or whomever um, at a pretty elaborate rate but i think those of us around the sport have always understood this is the way it goes down and the ncaa has never showed any willingness to try to cut down on it which frankly has always been surprising to me like the ncaa except for the ncaa is like in bed with the shoe companies right right so like you don't want to you know, bite the hand that feeds you, so to speak. But the idea that the NCAA will come down on you if you have a AAU coach pay your mom's car note once, but it's okay if Nike wants to give your father $50,000 to coach a team. That's always been bananas to me, and yet it's always been a real thing that the has never done anything about.
1: Right, because it's a thorny situation, this is why the NCAA twists itself into knots so often, because... If you just happen to have a really, really, really talented sixteen-year-old whose father has credentials to coach, why should he not have that opportunity to do so? Particularly before you get to the NCAA uh, level when he's in college. So it's 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 why we have so many problems with amateurism and why it you know it gets thorny year after year. Now, as we talk about what the NCAA will or won't do, if you've been listening to this pod, you know. Here de- in the details of this, you know DeAndre Ayton, $30,000 payment to his handler, 10000 to his mother. Brandon McCoy, 10000 check to his handler. Bull Bull, a $29,528 wire transfer. What will the NCAA do? Well, maybe ultimately nothing because so far as we can tell from the information and just allegations that we have at hand here, these are not involving schools or Division one coaches or assistant coaches. This is purely uh allegedly Nike affecting the <laughs> the recruitment of players to play on the Nike circuit and yes get them under their umbrella but it's got nothing to do with the schools in particular here to kind of you know circle back and put a bow on what GP asked me at the top of this conversation so um this is an interesting story with interesting details that I have no idea how far it will or will not go Um but my my prediction right now is if we get nothing else I, I I'm 100 percent on this. like the NCAA is not going to do anything to Arizona because of this, because of UNLV because of this, Oregon because of this, Duke or Indiana because of this because it's it's all strictly confined within the youth basketball grassroots scene based on this information alone. Now if the NCAA uses this information and then is able to uncover other things or if it already had this, then yeah, those schools could might be, be affected. But with what we have here, good talking point. NCAA legislation being doled out, not so much.
0: Yeah, I my prediction would be that you know, some of these schools that are roped into this story will ultimately be in some sort of NCAA trouble, but I'd be surprised if it's over any of this specific stuff. But uh, we'll see. By the way, um, it's August fifteenth. Uh, I bring that up because you know several weeks ago, it might be months at this point. An NCAA official was quoted on the record as saying multiple high-profile programs would get notices of allegations from the NCAA in the month of July, and that, I think the number was maybe six, would get them um, by the end of the summer. And to date, we only know about one. Um, Does that surprise you at all?
1: Yeah, the only one we know about is NC State. It does surprise me. I thought by August 15th, we'd have at least two. Uh, (laughs) maybe Maybe we're, you know... Shaking the cosmic curtains here, and and something will come out within the next 24 hours of us doing this. But uh, I'm expecting another one pretty soon here, Parish. Like soon. Like if it happens next week and it's a big program, like I might have we might have to shake up a uh, an emergency pot or something like that. But yeah, I do expect more. And. You know, when when we were on the road in Colorado Springs at the end of last month, you know, just kind of informally on background, not for attribution, talking to a few coaches, there is an expectation that there will there will be a wave here, two, three, four programs in the coming X amount of weeks here, but no one has a real strong feel on when it is. There also remains the possibility that uh, such notice of allegation has already been sent out, but whereas NC State and we lauded them for this, rightfully so. Release this voluntarily. If another school or two has this at this point, um, is just withholding it. And if you know Freedom of Information Act requests have been sent in, we don't have that yet. Uh, I will say I've reached out to a couple of schools that would you would think would uh would be on the hook here soon, and was told um, without you know not for attribution. Was told just at this point nothing. Th- there's nothing. If if it's there, like you know, the, the, those people that would know such things are completely unaware. So yes, I am surprised we don't have more. I would be shocked if we don't have something by the end of August, uh, and if we don't, uh, you know, given that an NCAA high-ranking NCAA official was already on the record about this happening in this time frame, I think an explanation is owed if we get to another week or two and we still don't have anything.
0: It is still the question I get asked most by coaches. Like We're doing our Candid Coaches series. We're launching it next week, so we've spent the past couple of weeks reaching out to coaches and, and asking them a series of questions that you know, for which we'll compile the answers and then present the results. And, um, you know, I I go through the questions. And then at some point, I'd say at least every other coach says, all right, well, let me ask you a question. What's going to happen to these guys? When is something going to happen and what is going to happen? So it is still a major talking point in the uh, coaching profession. And uh, perhaps we'll have answers, more answers soon. So earlier this week, Norlander, you did a piece on Kim Palm's ranking of every division 1 program 1 to 353 you actually rather than just write about it you you went and talked to him and got uh, an explanation for um the the method and i thought that was interesting because i believe most people i guess i shouldn't speak for most people but my assumption just by looking at the rankings was it was based on results and and it was just d- the data thrown into the computer and this is what it spits out now in the Con- kin pom era duke is the best program in america that made sense to me kentucky number two that made sense to me but what you found out is that um it's not strictly a results based ranking what did you learn uh from talking to ken about uh about his rankings
1: that's a great question gp i'm going to give you the answer after the break Woo All right. So I love this from Pomeroy and full disclosure, sometimes GP and I, and I prefer to do the podcast this way. Sometimes GP and I go into a podcast and I don't quite know what we're going to talk about. And I like that because it keeps it fresh. So I didn't know if we were going to talk about the Pomeroy rankings. I was hoping that we would. And indeed we are. Um, it is a fascinating list because it isn't just results oriented. Um, shouts to Ken by the way who was on vacation took the call on vacation overseas I will not disclose your location Ken uh, but but help get that story done and turned around in time it's conference affiliation how you've recruited top 100 prospects in essentially the past decade or so on top of on court performance with an emphasis on recency bias so let me just repeat that if some people are trying to get a hold of it it's the past 23 seasons worth of data With an emphasis on recency bias in like the past, I would say, three to seven years. That's my own estimation based on what Ken has here. What conference you're in has a a role in where you land. And if you've been able to recruit top 100 prospects, the rate at which you were able to recruit those is also playing a huge factor in this. Um, There were a number of schools that stuck out to me. I I tweeted about it. There's a story about it if you want to get into that. I'd actually perish. I mean, I, I have thoughts on some of them obviously but gp if i can just swing this back at you when you looked at this i assume like me like you know you thought okay this is this is a great idea but when either right before you clicked or when you clicked like were there a few schools to you that stood out uh for good or for bad higher or lower than you expected because i actually think the list is is fairly good but then there are there are inevitably there are some schools that make you think well, that seems weird, uh, and I had a number of those that I'll get to in a minute, but I wanted to get your thoughts on on what might have uh, stuck out most to you.
0: I um, I don't have the list right in front of me, but like I said, I, I wasn't surprised at the top, right? It, I would assume Duke it would be number one and Kentucky would be number two in some order. Yeah. Um, it's why it's hilarious to me, and I tweeted this when Ken's rankings came out. Um, every time you you know, or I tweet a link to the top 25 and one, you know, it's got right now Duke number two behind Michigan State. Inevitably, I will get people talking about Duke's overrated. Oh, you're overrating Duke again. Dude, Duke is always awesome. Do you realize in the Ken Palm era, which goes back to 1997, the worst they've ever finished is 19th? It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. Like, with all of the roster turnover, and I know they get all the McDonald's all in I got it. But the idea that whether it's injury-induced or you're just too heavily reliant on freshmen or somebody's a disappointment, like, all of these things that could, you know, take a season that was supposed to be promising and just push it the other way, it's never happened to them, really. Again, they've never finished outside of the top 20, going back to basically the mid-'90s. And so, like, it's almost impossible to overrate Duke. <laughs> right. Like, like I, I I, I tweeted a link to the Top 25 and one yesterday, and somebody tweeted back at me, uh, overrating Duke again. And what that implies is that Duke was overrated last year. Except Duke was the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. If anything, Duke was underrated last preseason if you had them second or third or fourth or fifth. So I wasn't surprised by the top. Duke and Kentucky one school that you highlighted um because i think you did 13 you yeah. know uh 13 schools that were interesting to you um was arkansas and to me that's a fascinating deal that speaks to how mediocre and just disappointing that program's been m- much of my adult life because i think you and i agree and you wrote about this because we got into this conversation um peach at Peach Jam, with we had a you know some just people from all angles of the basketball community, other writers, but um, you know just all sorts of people, and like we pretty much all agree. No matter if you think highly of Arkansas or you don't think much of Arkansas, we kind of all agree it's probably a top twenty-five program in America, and yet in Kim Pom's rankings, um, it's fifty-fifth, and so it just the it the the ranking doesn't. M- doesn't mesh with the perception, but it is clearly a result on some level. And this, to me, is one of the most amazing facts about any basketball program in the country. They have not been to a Sweet 16 since 1996. That is imp. It's not impossible because it's true, but my God, it's about as close to impossible as anything could be for that program with all of its resources and all of the success it had in the early 90s to not have been back to the Sweet 16 since 1996. Like, they went to three Final Fours in 1990, 94, 95. So, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94. In a six-year period, they went to three Final Fours. In 94, they won the championship. 95, they were the runner-up. Played in the title game. Lose to UCLA. 96, go to the Sweet 16. Imagine if then I'd have said, hey, um, in this seven-year period from 1990 to 1996, this program has been to three Final Fours, won a national championship, played in two national championship games, and been to uh, a Sweet 16 in 96. And it will never – we'll be talking in 2019. They will not have been back to the Sweet 16. That's crazy.
1: It's wild and – Unfortunate for Arkansas and that just the data, and Ken explained it. He said, listen, I, c- I have reliable, consistent, sport-ranging data going from 1996-97 up until now. Before that, uh, it's just not there. Because um, I, I heard from Kentucky fans who were like, why does it cut off right before arguably the best team of the past 30 years? Which I, that, that Kentucky team might be my favorite college basketball team of all time. Uh, if, if it was in there, maybe Kentucky has won. But you know what? Maybe not. For Arkansas, though, man... Like We went through every power conference, and the most dismissive view of Arkansas is that it's like 25th or 26th best in America, just in terms of the job, not the program. And what Ken did with these rankings is he tried to help uh, both media and fans alike just understand the echelon of jobs here so that if you're an Iowa fan who thinks that Iowa's a top 30 job, well, it's really not. Like It's 42nd here, and that's probably about where it should be, no offense to Iowa, although Iowa will have an issue with it because Iowa State is ranked ahead of it, and in that state, Iowa is a much, much bigger deal than Iowa State, and just from a pure job perspective, people within the industry would tell you that Iowa is a better job than Iowa State, even though Iowa State's fan base is tremendous. Um, so the Arkansas issue is one where, and I talked to Ken about this, I said, listen, there are some instances here where the encore performance just is not reflective of how the jobs are viewed uh, in in within the industry. Like, Arkansas, it, there is no shot at it's considered outside the top 30, let alone 55th overall. So those, those performances you know, over the span of two-plus decades that have led to aberrational placements in the rankings, I found fascinating. Like, for example, another team I highlighted was Florida State, 27th. Abnormally high. It's the only school rated in the top 30 that has not been in the NCAA tournament at least 10 times in the past 23 seasons. But because it's an ACC school... Because Leonard Hamilton has brought in top 20 programs seven times in recent years, and because as of late, Florida State has happened to be a good program, it cracks into the top 30. Pomeroy even indicated, he's like, once Hamilton leaves, how good of a program will this be? That's accurate, but you can also say that of a lot of schools. And though college basketball has been around for 80-plus years, I think with a lot of these programs, it can come down to who the coach is. It's incredible that Gonzaga is 12th on this list. It's not surprising. It just speaks to what Mark Few has been able to do. And just, oh, by the way, the Mark Few era almost exactly coincides with the data set we have here from Pomeroy's rankings. Gonzaga is undoubtedly a top 12 program over the past 23 years. The results bear that out, and with Mark Few, that's true. Now, when Mark Few eventually leaves, if Gonzaga drifts back from 12 to, say, 33rd, that wouldn't exactly be the biggest surprise. It's why Virginia being at 17 might seem low to some, I actually thought it was a little bit high because until like three, four years ago, Virginia was not viewed anywhere close to what it's been. Tony Bennett has done a tremendous job at that. And in fact, Virginia's ranking pair, so I noticed this in the piece, it's 17th, but it's median ranking. It's average ranking at Ken Palm over that same 23-year span is 51st in his rankings. That's the greatest disparity between where the averages and where he land, the, it landed in his program rankings of any team in the top 88 overall. I found that kind of fascinating. And yes, let me just get to UConn here real quick, because I was surprised. I guessed, before I clicked on it, I guessed and I thought UConn would be 8th in these rankings. They're 19th overall, despite having more national championships in the past 23 seasons than any other program. They've been to the tournament 14 times. But Pomeroy said tournament performance was not a factor in this. What you do over the course of a season is, so inherently, if you win a tournament, yes, you're going to beat two, three, four, five really good programs and bump up through the rankings. But he said UConn's the only school that busts this thing. And they're also the two lowest national champions ever in a given season. The 14 team was 15th overall. The 11 title team was number 10. Those are the lowest ranked champions in the history of his database there. That has played a factor. He also said uh, being in the American has cost them two or three spots overall. But when you've got, you know, the likes of, say, Indiana without a national championship in that span, ahead of, ahead of UConn, uh, Wisconsin as well, Gonzaga, um, of course, I mentioned, even Texas at 10, which it's a top 10 job, I think. I think everyone in the industry would agree with it. I just uh, I found it pretty fascinating. And then uh, Memphis Tigers, just real quick, they're 22nd. I thought that was about right. They had some real dominance there, and they're overcoming um, being in CUSA when it was good and then kind of drifted, and then the Americans can – been kind of hit or miss i cannot recommend these rankings enough they're just a great way to kill an hour if you're a diehard college basketball fan and uh, kind of want to sort through this in the middle of the offseason
0: you can find the rankings of course at kinpom.com. if you don't have a subscription you should have a subscription and norlander story is at cbssports.com and on both of our twitter feeds before we get out of here real quick should make note because we talked a lot about it on the previous podcast uh, rest in peace to the so-called Rich Paul rule. The NCAA, I believe it was on Monday, uh, announced that they have amended their agent certification process for players testing the waters of the NBA draft. It was a controversial announcement the week prior because, um, among other things, they would not allow an agent without a bachelor's degree to represent players testing the water. Um, then LeBron James labeled it the Rich Paul rule because Rich Paul, his agent, doesn't have a a bachelor's degree, did not finish college. Uh, Rich Paul wrote an op-ed for The Athletic, I think on Monday morning and six hours later, the incidentally announced that that is no longer a stipulation. If you are certified, uh, with, um, certified by and in good standing with the NBPA, um, you will be allowed to represent um the players testing the process and I guess I would just say you know it's just another first off let me give the incidentally credit they did the right thing they made a mistake they publicly acknowledged a mistake they listened to the criticism and they adjusted pretty quickly like that's all good stuff but shouldn't should have never made the mistake should have never had the rule because it was a rule rooted in I don't know nonsense but also filled with Racial overtones I mean it felt like it was a rule um, Certainly at least some people Interpreted it this way A, a rule designed to prevent The young black hustler From, from getting in the game It was mm-hmm. trying to put up a fence Against as you and many others have pointed out Christian Dawkins like characters As opposed to Rich Paul This would have as Rich Paul noted in his op-ed Would have had no impact on him He's bigger than this Either way the the point I made in my column Is that this is a rule that was in place because of a recommendation recommendation from the Commission on College Basketball, and it's just the latest example uh, of the Commission on College Basketball making a recommendation that's just going to be rubber-stamped by the NCAA um, that people around the sport who have a good grasp for the inner workings of the sport um, identify very quickly as just that's a bad recommendation and yet they keep making bad recommendations and so the point i made is like the next mistake the ncaa needs to admit is that it is a poorly constructed commission on college basketball they have a lot of successful brilliant and i say this sincerely people on that committee but they do not understand the inner workings of college basketball they're not equipped to do the job the ncaa has asked them to do and I don't know how much more time we need to, to take to acknowledge that uh, Condoleezza Rice is an impressive, impressive human with an incredible Wikipedia page filled with accomplishments, but she should not be the face of a committee that is trying to overhaul amateur basketball because she simply doesn't, she's not familiar enough with the inner workings of, of amateur basketball.
1: Uh, yeah. Your column was b- broadly correct. Um, I don't see how the NCAA is going to walk this stuff back. Uh, they made too much of a public spectacle of it. It w- This will be in the first paragraph of Mark Emmert's legacy, if you will, of his time at the NCAA. This is, you know, by his own doing and, a- and what people will view it as. And it I mean, they are viewing it as, a, as I think, a success. And many others are viewing it as uh, a misguided shortcoming there. Um, the rule getting amended is great. My big takeaway was, one, I thought way too much of uh, was made of this whole thing in general. But that's what's going to happen if LeBron James, Chris Paul, and hello from the wings, Kevin Hart, come on down, chiming in on this stuff. Like, when you've got... People with a combined, you had it in a previous column, like 90 million Twitter followers. Who knows, like, how many combined on all social media channels? Yeah, obviously, it's going to create some noise. I get all that. Uh, but again, in practical purposes, this rule put into place affecting players on an annual basis, I think, will be in the single digits. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be in a place if it can negatively affect one player. Like, obviously, you should, you should consider a rule like that. But I thought there was way, way too much noise around this. That said, I like that they amended it. And I want us to keep in mind the next time. There's a high-profile controversial rule change. The NCAA was able to fix this within a week's time. I think less than a week's time. Um... It's notoriously slow on a lot of stuff, and here it wasn't. Now, I don't know if that's because of the, where it falls on the legislative calendar or some other stuff that people won't even care about. The NCAA, when it wants to be or when it needs to be, can act fast on things. It needs to be more like this more often. That was what was refreshing about it. Yeah, it was a small change in uh, a relatively minor rule, but it needs to display this kind of stuff way more often. As for the commission, I agree Unfortunately, with you, Parrish, unfortunately it's going to take years um, to, to drift away from a lot of that stuff uh, because what the commission did and what it recommended, The they've had multiple high-ranking officials go on record time after time saying that what that commission recommended, it's going to take seriously a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And you've obviously seen that come to play, as we've discussed plenty on this podcast, with the recruiting calendar, uh, tweaks of which I still expect to change in the next coming year.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I agree with you. I, I, I I insist that they should do away with this commission. I do not think that they will because I don't think they have any interest in embarrassing Lisa Rice. I don't think they have any interest in acknowledging that um, they created this poorly. Uh, again, and it's, it's an impressive list of people independent of anything else, but they don't need those people um, on that commission. If you're really trying to understand amateur basketball And have thoughtful ideas about how to fix it. um, You need grassroots people on that commission. You need college basketball coaches who are working right now on that committee. You need recruiting analysts. You need not necessarily me or you, but people like us who have been, in my case, you know, um, involved at every level of the sport for two decades now. Um, You need people who actually are out there, who understand it, and who who recognize what the issues really are and, um, and and maybe don't have obvious solutions but at least have ideas that won't be panned every time they're made public because the Commission on College Basketball, whether it's the recruiting calendar or this, um, it, it, their recommendations are in real time, as they're made public, panned. And people explain this is why this isn't good. And the idea that they don't see that while developing the idea is um, is an obvious problem. For instance, I, I think you and I, people like us, could maybe serve on a commission of college basketball and be effective. But if you took us and asked us to um, serve on a commission of uh, amateur hockey, I wouldn't have any idea what to do. I don't know anything about amateur hockey. I'm not... Um, immersed in amateur hockey in other words i am about as qualified to serve on a commission of amateur hockey as some of these people are who are serving on the commission of college basketball and so again incredibly successful people but but not equipped to do the job that they're being asked to do and that's why we keep getting one very public mistake after another you ready to get out of here?
1: Let's get on out of here. Get those arms feeling better. I got to get back to the chainsaw and at some point today take care of more of that 70-foot willow tree that fell down in my backyard. But uh, mm. GP, it's always great to catch up with you. Always great to hear from you. I just need you. I need you feeling fresh and good to go by, say, about Valentine's Day. Can we try and make that happen?
0: I'm, I'm under doctor. I ordered my arm braces and ice packs last <laughs> night. They should be here I'm on uh, to pre- Friday. <laughs> I'm <just> I'll be <laughs> in, uh, I'll be in the recovery mode ASAP. What a depressing.
1: That's day. an amazing vision, Paris. i I can actually. I can see it. It's actually it's probably actually not all that different from your usual Saturday and Sunday. You know, in in the recliner, Mets game on, little beverage off to the side. But I, I just, I have this vision of you, like arms at a 45 degree angle perked up and just loving life when the Mets are winning, hate it when they're losing, and just like going to the grocery store. So you're at the grocery store and you can push the cart because that's the angle your arms need to be at, but then like you're almost like a robot. Like you go and grab the carrots or grab the box of cereal and you can't bend your arms because they're all stuck together.
0: Well, you can – like it's actually kind of weird what you can and cannot do. Um, I'm not supposed to pick anything up in the natural way that you would pick something up so like if there's a shoe on the ground the way you right now would reach down and pick that up i'm not supposed to reach down and pick that up i need to have anytime i'm picking something up or carrying something either uh palms of my hands um you know uh facing each other or palms of my hands facing up so if i go pick up my backpack now i need to scoop it up as opposed to just pick it up you mentioned on the couch beverage next to me when I now – go I, like under normal circumstances, I would just reach with my left hand. I've got a table right next to my couch, and I would pick up my drink and have a drink, and i pick it up. I can't do that anymore. That's painful, and it's doing damage to my elbow. So I have to actually turn my whole body, pick up a cup with two hands like I'm a four-year-old, and, and drink it while I have to hold my cup with
1: both hands. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's such no, it's stupid. actually amazing, and I need video. <laughs> it's,
0: I have to I like I I I'm, I'm acting like a three. I'm, I'm it's like if it's like somebody's telling me, "Hey, make sure you use two hands when you pick up your drink." I have to use two hands when I pick up my drink. That's the other thing. It's not just one elbow.
1: Most people who get tennis elbow, it's one elbow. Yeah. I'm both. I'm both. You've got to be over under people in America right now that have double tennis elbow, not related to tennis at all, let alone having double tennis elbow. I'm setting it at like 9.5. I don't think you're alone because a lot of a lot of people do a lot of stupid things, but you're in a rare class.
0: It's unbelievable.
1: Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South
0: Carolina. Shouts to Terry, M, F, and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to Larnell. And please go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. While you're there, rate it five stars leave a nice and positive comment Uh, we would appreciate it and either way we will talk to you again next week till then take care